Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, good to see you again, my friend. It's uh, is it another week already? I thought I just looked at it's, your face like a few days ago. Well, it's, I might need more time in between to, doses. In between recordings. Of, <laughs> of I'm a lot. I'm like I am a lot. I'm like a I'm like a shot of espresso. You're you're full on. You're full. Oh my goodness! So crisis. I've run out of I've run out of uh, roasted beans in my coffee machine. Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to get out today and you know and buy some some good artisanal roast beans. Oh yeah. Do you um, what kind of coffee make? Well, I mean, I'm a writer, right? So it's it's a big part of oh, my yeah. ritual. You got to sort of, you know, every now and then it's a great way to procrastinate. And I've got I've got one of those I've got the pour over right here. Look, okay, you're way above me. But but I've got a great coffee machine. It's uh, I forget the brand, but you know, I've got to grind the beans myself and tamp them down and fire them in there and make them. And, and so it's it's like a 15 minute thing, right? Which is great if you're trying to procrastinate from work. It's like, well, it, it takes time to me to got to steam the milk and pour it and Actually, my my latte art is getting pretty good. I was skeptical about the pour over until I got one because people would say like the purists were so into it. But it is part of it. It's like it, you're you're actually getting the fewest material, you know, the fewest amount of material between the beans, the water, and your glass. You know, there's just a paper filter. That's like it. it, it there's no like. It's not running through things. It's not like, and and I guess the the, the little whatever the carafe is, but you're. It's not going through like a bunch of like pipes or things, and get, so it's like you know you boil the water, pour. It's 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 a pure form. It is interesting, you know, as you travel around the world that you know, you know, so many cultures have their coffee culture, and you know, a lot of uh, a lot of I guess North America has kind of been revolutionized by by Starbucks and sort of the return of, of espresso-style coffees. You know, down in Australia and New Zealand, it is hard to find a Starbucks because there are so many independent coffee shops that people are loyal to that it's just hard for the, the mass coffee to come in. But but then I think about here in Europe, I mean, there's Turkish coffee, which is totally different. Vietnamese coffee, have you done Vietnamese coffee? I've never. I, with, I, I mean, with there are condensed places you can get milk, it here, but... With condensed milk, it's like really sweet and... And yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's not that good for you, but it does taste really, really nice. And then, of course, you know, living in China for a couple of years, I mean, coffee has now sort of started to become a thing, you know, and, and, and really in the last 20 years of globalization. But but it's still very much a tea place. You know, you go to you go to tea houses and you drink tea and you have tea in, in the evening with 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 your friends rather than sort of coffee breaks in the morning. It's interesting, too, because you can coffee like a coffee shop. You can like you you don't like fire somebody over a meal you fire them over coffee or you know you don't have a hard conversation over a meal you have a hard conversation over coffee or you go on an initial date if you're not sure over coffee because you can get in and out you it's know like as opposed to a meal which is much more like a, 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 a there's the comedy the the bonding of you know it's, it, and it can go on a little while it's coffee's it's socially it's it's you it's, it can move in and out quick it would be interesting to talk to you know some sociologists about coffee shops or, or like anthropologists because it also seems to me that you know depending what you're kind of curious about finding the coffee shop where that community flows is kind of a good way just to you know get into the headspace of people so you know if i go to 
coffee shops in sort of the area of London where, you know, all of the tech startups are. They're, they're doing, you know, they're doing meetings in the coffee shop and they're doing job interviews in the coffee shop and they're, you know, they're, they're comparing their Uber rider ratings um, in the coffee shop. Whereas if I go to, say, you know, Oxford and a cafe there, you've got people doing their tutorials and, you know, talking about their books and marking their essays. And, and so it's this kind of, you know, all around the world, it's the same basic product. And it's kind of the same idea. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a social space where you can nonetheless do your private thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and so, but it's kind of on display. So you can see the different private worlds that people live in on display. If we had time, this would be a great. I was going to say we could do a coffee table book on that, but that, would, like, that, would that be Seinfeld? like too meta? <laughs> Remember, yeah, you know that one Seinfeld episode where Kramer does a coffee table book on coffee tables, on celebrity coffee tables, and then the great thing is like it's got legs, and the book actually becomes like a mini coffee table. <laughs> and then he goes on Regis and Kathy Lee, and Regis is like, "This guy's bunkos." Oh <laughs> it's I, amazing. I got to pick up a package downstairs, so I'm going to edit. Sorry. There he is. <sighs> hmm, I'm back. I'm back. Amazon. Nice. Keeps me. So fit. I would, I would be remiss to me- not mention. Also, a, a recent interview I did with on Give and Take with the guy AJ Jacobs, who's a pretty celebrated American writer right now. He's written for Esquire and GQ and plus, uh, a couple other places. But he's he, probably his most famous book. He did this book called A Year of Living Biblically, where he tried to he wanted to learn more about religion, so he just decided to try to follow every rule in the bible literally and out of that oh he started he he's like you know there's all these prayers you're thanking you're being thankful for things so i decided to try to be more grateful and he wanted to thank everybody involved in making his morning cup of coffee so he started with the barista he got to know her <laughs> he then he went to the coffee roaster guy in philly then just went to south america went to the filtration plant in the Catskills where they get the water and all this. And so it's, it's called uh, thanks a thousand. It's a book. Of, and, it, and there's also all these meditations on the power of gratitude, like the psychological hmm. kind of power. Of, it's, it's like a sort of superfood psychologically gratitude. And he has this great quote from some Benedictines that said, I, happiness doesn't make you grateful. Gratitude makes you happy, which is a very interesting mm. kind of thing. So, so, mm. but it all started from his. He even talked to the people that made designed the lid at his coffee shop and the and the sleeve, which is called a zephyr or something, which is an ancient Chinese invention, I guess, for t- the sleeve that would keep things from burning <laughs> your hand. Yeah, I mean, the, the, he, the I, Chinese have claimed that one now too. Yeah, exactly. My God. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's just a fascinating book. It's a great read. It's like one hundred and thirty pages or something. It's, it's a fantastic book. It's actually really interesting. Oh my God, I'm going to get interrupted by Amazon again. This is going to happen. What is that? Amazon brought you a book titled The Empty Space? (sighs) What is that book? So this book is uh, The Empty Space by Peter Brook. Uh, have you ever heard of it? Would, I, would be, I would be surprised if you heard about it. It's from 1968. Um, yes. Peter Brook was, actually, I think he's still living, uh, this country, so, so the UK's probably like most, most famous, most celebrated theater director. 
Oh, nice. And so, and so this book is kind of like required reading for people in, uh, in the theater world. I was having coffee, <laughs> speaking of which, with um, this uh, uh, just uh, totally extraordinary man named uh, Rob Poynton, who um, is uh, an improvisational artist and, and now sort of goes around the world working with people about sort of the, the principles of improv. And, uh, and he recommended this book to me. Uh, Peter Brook, nice. I, I can take any empty space and call it a bare stage. Mm. I like that. That's deep, man. That's deep, man. So, yeah. So, I, I mean, there is actually a link between sort of that concept and the concept of, you know, wanting to see the chain in your morning cup of coffee. And it, it's sort of the idea of, you know, seeing... Re- reframing how we see things, right, is kind of the the basic concept. And I and I suppose what's really interesting about the story you told about this guy, sort of retracing the the supply chain, the entire supply chain of people involved in his cup of coffee, is that we've built an economic system, right, with with like money as this fungible means of transaction, which means that it is possible to to um, to break that chain of custody down into very small pieces so that if we want, we only ever have to interact with the person who actually delivers, you know, pours, pours the coffee to us. And, and, and so that's kind of this sort of fragmented consciousness of how our world comes to us. You know, how my Amazon book comes into my door is, is, is a consequence of the economic system of the money system. And, and it is interesting to kind of deliberately, but it also takes effort to reconstruct the connections in our own head uh, of how, uh, of how interconnected very simple things in our lives are. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting because we're, we're more interconnected in many ways than, than we've, than we've ever been globally. I mean, well, that's just a fact, right? We are, we are exponentially more connected with the wider world than ever in history. And yet, yeah, people so, also yeah. feel isolated, fragmented. You know, th- you look at the, the you look at the phenomena in the United States of like of of mass shootings, right? It's always th- these kids, usually guys, usually white guys, uh, young who feel just alienated. They, there's just mm. you know you so it's it, it's interesting with all the interconnection. There's also a, a, a seeming huge people are starved for authentic human connection. Mm. I had a so I had. Let me, let me, um, uh, let me sort of tap into your experience base. So I, I had I had drinks last night with a, a friend of mine, and he's a successful tech entrepreneur, really interesting guy. And we and we were just you know it was completely aimless conversation for a couple of hours, just catching up and Happy New Year and yada yada yada. And uh, we were talking about sort of the impact of smartphones on our lives um obviously something that in his tech world they talk a lot about and he he gave some examples of you know people who uh, so one thing he said is he really appreciates that he had been sort of born and to some extent came of age before the smartphone before everything was digital and so that he goes through life having having that kind of base of comparison that how the world was before, what the analog world looked and felt like um, to the digital world, which which other one that was an interesting point. That, yeah, you know, it, I really value actually to, to to despite the fact that you know sometimes we interpret it as we might be slower to pick up the latest and greatest things. Like I'm still not much of a Snapchat user, 
but what we what we do have if if we're lucky enough to be born a little earlier than the average millennial is uh just a bit more context of what it was before and and so what's changed anyway he was talking about how uh in his experience or his observation that youth today and i mean these are very broad brushes so it's wrong for half of the cases i guess but that you know youth today often they struggle to navigate social contexts and 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 so he gave the example of he and his wife on the holiday they were sort of on a beach and there's a bunch of kids playing with like a soccer ball or something like that and and so there's a bunch of people on the beach too so they they would frequently sort of end up hitting other people or interrupting them and 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 those people when they came to get the ball would you know politely some of them angrily but mostly politely say you know geez you know could you please play somewhere else or be careful and he said like these kids complete blank faces no response no engagement as as if they didn't know how to negotiate that social situation and i thought that's interesting like i wonder if that's you you talk about sort of the, the 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 paradox between the connectedness and and the isolation and we talk about that as you know the technology isolates up but but is it also that the the capacity to sort of navigate social situations does take practice and and there's just less need to engage sort of in human conversations with people and so we grow up just being less practiced at, at all of that. Yeah. And I think especially for like kids, you, it's interesting because I had this discussion after church, we're talking about what would you do if somebody wanted to be baptized, but wasn't a member of the church really. And I kind of err on the side of grace, inclusivity on that stuff. We were talking about like, you're going to hell. Exactly. Not, not for that, but for other things. No, 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 Scott, for that too. For that, for that too. But, but, we were saying how, like, the one of these guys who's an elder at the church, he's a really interesting guy, was saying that, like, as a, he's probably in his late 50s, I would guess. He, he said, you know, as a kid, he got so much confidence in public speaking from, like, doing readings at church. Because he said, you know, hmm. even if you were terrible at it, everyone's rooting for you to do well. And you thought, and it builds you, and, and just little things like that, like these, you know, if you're in a church or synagogue or mosque or things like that, they're, they're one of the few intergenerational institutions, right, that where you're actually with people that are not just your friends, right, or, or necessarily your neighbors, and yet it's also not just the mall, right? So it's it, there's more affinity than that. There's a connection. There's this sort of unity and diversity within that. And I think that kind of thing is is difficult to replace. And I think these kinds of, you know, as we get more mobile, the, it's harder to find those kind of intergenerational communities where, where you have, also you have a certain sense, sense of so, over, overlapping shared values. So, so yeah. you're more relaxed in the interaction. So intergenerational. So yeah, that that's very interesting because one is just the general question of where do we learn today um, to navigate social situations? If it's true that a lot of the everyday interactions are kind of being automated away. I mean, I don't even have to talk to the taxi driver if I'm taking an Uber, right? I can just sort of show up and then, nah. and you can, but you don't have to. Uh, but intergenerational communication may be an especially... Um, endangered species of social interaction. And I wonder, do you think, you know, there, there was just so much media coverage of this, um, the, the, these Covington school kids in DC and, and the encounter with these Native American elders. I mean, was that part of what was going on in that story or, or what do you think of that? Let's start with that. Yeah. It's interesting because that story is like, so first off, like 
the, the it's the virtue signaling thing, right? The reason it's a story is because somebody tweets it out there, and then it, you are if you're a liberal, you've got to show that you're in solidarity with this Native American elder, even though you don't know the whole story or whatever. And if you're a, 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 a sort of conservative America and, you know, you're, everybody, the media, the elite, the high, everybody's against this kid. So we got to, you know, right, right. show so the, the, the event is almost irrelevant. It's what, right. what it, can we use this event to represent? Exactly. And it's yeah. funny because like with the virtue signaling thing, like it's so important that you, that people know, like I, I, I made my voice. I, I showed everybody where my lot was cast. Right. Mm. And so, mm. and then, you know, it's just, it's still going on. It's funny because it's, it's last night, there were several news segments. I, I flipped back and forth on different news channels a lot in the evening, just while I'm doing things. And, and Fox news was running it like lead story a lot it's because it's sort of, now, now why did that, why is this story important? If you're a conservative, well, it shows media bias. It shows how anti-Trump. Oh, okay, it shows right. The, uh, and look how the and, narrative has been turned against them and unraveled and problematized. Exactly. And, and you know what? In fairness, there was a there was a, a people did craft a narrative before the whole story was there. Right? It wasn't just this Native American and these kids. There were the Black Hebrew Israelites who are if you are ever in a metro area where they're preaching stop and listen because it's a f- it's fantastic i mean hmm. it is like hmm. they're 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 pretty nuts but it's they're they're <laughs> but it's some good they're, shit <laughs> they're oh yeah oh gosh they think they're the lost tribe of israel and really african-americans are the only like they're, they're the really chosen people and it's it's fantastic i mean <laughs> and they're pretty talented too like you hear them on the street they're really good like it's not boring you will not be bored but they were ch- they were chanting like homophobic things, you know, to the kids in the MAGA hats who were there, you know, at a pro-life rally, a Catholic mm. school. So mm. then, you know, this allegedly the Native American elder gets involved and, you know, he's trying to be a buffer or whatever. And the kid, I mean, it's just it's so much of it is like it's, it's just it's a bunch of people who all probably could have behaved better in a very stressful high intensity situation and so so you take a normal complex Mm. weird human interaction and then you sort of make snippets and turn it into a narrative which everybody has to say well you know i I, here i'm on this team with the protagonist the antagonist it's just it's it's crazy and i mean so standing an ocean away and and watching it i suppose you know what was what 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 was crazy from my perspective is like why why are we talking about this like not to say that i i mean and i understand you know all the symbolic importance of the event and i guess what it was for the people who were in the moment but should we not also recognize in the same breath that you know these moments of you know people imperfectly interacting with you know strangers in public spaces um I mean, they're happening, you know, millions of times, billions of times a day. I'm not sure that it's newsworthy, right? I think that it's ordinary life. I think that it's... It's you know it, it's all it, it feels like social pornography to to, <laughs> to watch it. Absolutely, no, it absolutely, it absolutely is. And, and, and you know, and by and, the way, your yeah. government is shut down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, this is in DC. This is talking about that. <laughs> this is in DC, where like a lot of like trash cans and stuff on these like in these public sites are like overflowing. They're not getting. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's 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 crazy. And so you know, so that is interesting. That you know, as you say, that what what is happening in a lot of the. Uh, like news media and in social media today is not in any sense an attempt to you know communicate all the news that's fit to print 
it, it, it is kind of searching for episodes that fit and support a narrative that I want to promote. Yeah, and you become, I'm convinced, like a worse person, like every in general, like on Twitter, like if you, like you. As part of it is none of the normal human interaction, social graces, cues, things like that. Like even these kids, like who don't have a lot of these maybe social negotiations. At least they just pause, right? They're not. They like, okay. Oh, whoa, what do I do? But like when you're on on social media, it's like most of the time you're interacting with people that you don't know. Right. Especially when you're really a terrible person. It's often people you don't know personally. You'd never say these things to their face. You would never talk in public this way, except with friends, with a few drinks out of your shot or something. And then all of a sudden you you it's like Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde. You become that person. You know, it's funny. John Pod Horowitz, who's an editor of Commentary magazine here in the States and interesting, interesting guy, sort of center right kind of guy. But very good. He's kind of never Trumper, very funny, interesting guy. But he was talking about this. And how Twitter makes him a worse person. And he was saying that, like, you know, Jim Acosta was saying something on Twitter on election night for the midterms. And he was saying something about, well, why can't we call it a wave? We called it a wave in this, you know, a couple of years ago when the Republicans won. And Pud Horowitz said, I tweeted back, well, things are different. And here's what was different. This, the, you know, the, the statistics and the votes were different. And he said, I could have just stopped there. And then I had a sentence, Acosta do you want to be a clown for your whole life all the time? <laughs> He's like, why, why, why did I add that? He's like, why did I have to do that? Like, I never would do that in, in real life, but it's one of these things. And then, yeah, he's caught in this dilemma. He's like, you know, I, I don't think it helps us. And yet I, ha I like, you know, how else would we let people know there's new articles and commentary or new podcasts or new things. So it's like, I, I don't like it for my soul, but my business requires it. So you, the whole thing is an interesting phenomenon. I stick by this too. I, I, I'm more and more persuaded by the point you make in your book and you made it on the podcast a few, a few weeks ago that let's let it all burn. Like, let's, let's, let's <laughs> like see, let's let it play out because I do think you're right. It probably shows where the cracks are in the democracy and the social fabric because I think it's such a new phenomenon. We, we, we don't yet know how how, like what this is making us or who we're becoming, right? And I think, I think to critically engage with it is absolutely what should we should do. I think the abst, like the abstinence approach, the prohibition approach, that stuff never works. And I think this is for better or worse, this is with us, hmm. and so we have to let it play out. It is changing us, like any technology changes us, right? We're you know that that now. People born after the internet are, for, you know, there's this famous uh, video that circulated social with this social media with this kid who was a, a new, I think not, not a newborn, but an infant who was playing with a magazine and and touching it, looking for the magazine right. to yeah. like interact mm. digitally, like because most of his time is spent on interactive screens, and so that does change us. So it's interesting, yeah. I suppose that you know the last couple of years there's been a lot of hand wringing around how do we. How do we regulate social media? How do we control social media? Um, and you know, and there's, uh, it's a valuable path of inquiry. I think this is undoubtedly going to be uh, more of that. I know that the the crowd at Davos, you know, is starting to grudgingly accept that there's probably going to be, you know, some legislative change to make make privacy rights stronger um, and give citizens, you know, more control over their data. Um, and, and that's probably going to be a healthy sort of like policy response to a lot of what's been happening in social media and, and, and the power that, that social media organizations have started to demonstrate in the world over the last couple of years. But, but I also feel that, you know, we need to spend more 
energy sort of yeah taking advantage of the upheaval to to kind of dig deep into ourselves and understand how we are um a lot more and i'm trying to i'm trying to my head to relate this to some of the um, some of the public speaking I do and some of the work I do with um, you know uh, corporate clients who you know they're dealing with digital transformation and what's really interesting there is you know you you kind of go into a corporate setting and and most organizations the leadership of organizations think that this is a technology problem right we've got to figure out how to hire the uh, you know hire the coders and hire the IT staff and how do we retain these people because they've got to come in and sort of change our systems and change how we do things. And, you know, where, where eventually I try to get them is to understand that the technology is actually the easy part. The hard part is, the, is changing the culture of the organization to, um, to work with uh, new technologies because the technology gives us the possibility of new ways of working. And so if you kind of try to take your old way of working and add a new technology onto it, you, you just get frustrated people. But if you can, can sort of reinvent how you work to use the new technology effectively, you, that, that, that is actually, that is actually the, the challenge. And, you know, so that, that the technology allows, um, you know, smaller teams to do more work, that the technology allows people to not be in the office at the same time and, and anyway, sorry, I'm not yeah, making then, any sense. No, no, no. But then, no, I think that's right. Though, and then you think about what things can't the technology replace. Like it's interesting because Jeff Bezos, you know, at Amazon, they had this, you know, I guess the head corporate team or whatever. They had this time where when people are pitching new ideas, you have to submit like a two-page uh, single-spaced or something proposal, and everybody sits and reads it while the person's there, and then talks about it. It's an idea. It's like, it's not a power. Oh, yeah, I read it's something a, about that. Yeah. 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 Which is interesting. I mean, mm. cause I think about like, so I, right now I'm in a very traditional kind of church context and there's no like PowerPoint screens or anything like that. Like, but I, I was, I've been in churches. I've served at churches where like it was in a warehouse and it was hip and it was full of mm. young people. Like, and, mm. and I spent so much time. I used to preach longer and would do the, it was like elaborate PowerPoint slides and thinking about it, does my iPhone remote work and all this. <laughs> and, I, and now I just, I don't think I was more effective as a communicator than I am mm. now without any of that stuff. And, and, mm. and I'm not a sort of Luddite and I'm not a kind of, I think I, I, I'm a techie kind of person, but, but sometimes you can't see in the midst of it, like, you know, oh my gosh, this, this technology didn't help on this part. You know, actually there's certain things that it can, and there's other things that can really help, you know, that it can, automate things that we don't need to do which which kind of can highlight if we're mindful enough but that's the problem right it's it's exactly what you're saying the the anxiety is over the change of the technology so we're all focusing on bringing the expert no 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 that's easy where you have experts that coding that's not that you know that's but the hard part is seeing the the cultural changes and navigating mm -hmm. them mindfully and seeing with the perils and the promise that the innovations bring and i i think very often you just don't have people thinking about stuff like that no, and I mean, that's the, so I guess that's part of what we're trying to do, you know, together with these conversations is I, I, I really feel that in order to do some of that stuff, we need to somehow zoom out, right? You've got to have somehow the ability to uh, step 
back from the way things are in order to recognize, okay, that's that's the paradigm or that's the way things are. And 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 sometimes, I mean, with you know, with deep technological change, you really have to step back pretty far in order to identify the kind of meaningful context in which things were that now needs to change. So, you know, stepping as far back as saying, oh, okay, you know, uh, so much of the way we work was uh, conceived for an industrial model, right? And and you have to step pretty far back before you can sort of abstract to that level and say, oh, yeah, right. I mean, everything from from unions to offices to suburbs over here and people commuting in the morning to uh, meetings and, you know, a lot of it, there's still a lot of military DNA in how uh, the classical workplace is, is organized, the kind of security that we expect to have in that workplace. So, so, so much of our present conception of, 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 of work and of our personal relationship with technology is, 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 is rooted in an industrial paradigm, which, I mean, that's what's being overturned. Right. And and so then the question is, how do how do we rethink a lot of things for, you know, some post-industrial paradigm for for a world where, you know, certainly the economic world is much more about, you know, I used to say it was sort of a knowledge age that we're in this transition from an industrial age to a knowledge age. But now I recognize the problem with that is in a world with AI, knowledge isn't really all that def- defining. I mean, the knowledge is going to be at our fingertips when we need it. And and so I think it's actually more like from an industrial age to a learning age. And it's the ability to learn, to know what we need to learn and to learn it with whatever knowledge the, the computers can put at our fingertips. That is really sort of what the engine of economic progress and therefore what so much of our other social systems like the education system and welfare system and political system is going to be oriented towards is how do we how do we build how do we build learning societies yeah, it's interesting because plato and i think it's in the phaedrus right yeah he has this story where like the king of egypt is people are showing him all these things at court and and the god the a god of of invention or something comes before him and shows him writing right and and says this is going to make everybody wiser this that it's going to make everybody such better thinkers and the king of egypt says no it's not going to make anybody anybody anything like this it will give them the illusion of wisdom it'll give them the you know they won't know how to recall things or internalize things and it will just it's going to create a a more superficial people right now it's interesting because plato is doing offering this critique of writing in a written dialogue, right? So it's like there's this, kind of, there's this there's this irony there. So I mean, but I think there he's trying to think critically about how things like a technology like writing, which all of us are saying books are amazing, right? But but there is something about writing. Like you think about well, you uh, lose the the kind of the oral context and communication. And if I can write something to you, then I don't have to be physically present to you to make that argument. And you don't have the opportunity to respond to me in real time to my face right it, yeah it you, don't, you don't have to internalize everything yeah you have no, to you so have the, to. So, yeah exactly so the same thing we were talking about is how you know is digital technology are we do we have fewer and fewer opportunities to learn how to navigate social situations i can imagine plato saying the same thing about writing right right and there's always you know it's interesting because I know my childhood phone number, 609-582-1184. If I had, I don't think I could tell you my wife's phone number, like, because it, it's programmed to my phone. Like, I don't, I don't know my, I, I do, I, I do know my own phone number because I have to put it into a lot of things, but I don't know because, so that, no, is that a loss that I can't memorize phone numbers? Anymore? You know, I, 
probably it's it, who cares? You know, it, there are certain things that like that when they pass away, they're not a huge loss. But then there are other things that that could be. It's interesting because I used to be of the persuasion, of very skeptical about this that handwritten note takers do better than people that keynotes in on a tablet or a laptop or something. Hmm. And I, I don't, now I'm, I'm starting think more multi-sensory about the experience of writing and the way the brain works that, that you know the more the more the whole you is engaged the deeper the synapses or whatever you know the the neural pathways are are, are mined i guess so I, hmm. you know these are things that are that are interesting questions and they have to be like there's no pan there's no easy answer to most of them and mo and most of the time we'll get it wrong a lot a lot of times before we get to any kind of equilibrium. It's also interesting. So, wow, we're really bouncing all over the place, which is great. And somehow we're going to weave it all together. We intended to get to like the headlines, but we did get to Covington. So that's our first kind of headline. That's right. That, that Covington yeah. was interesting. We, we, we might still we might still get to the headlines, but you know, so we we kind of do have this conceit when we talk about technology, and 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 it can be you know sort of like like physical technology that we usually imply when we use the word technology, or it could be cultural technology, like, you know, the Me Too movement. But we have this conceit when we talk about technology that we can ask ourselves, um, you know, should we adopt it or not, or not? By the time we're asking ourselves that question, it's already sort of with us. And 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 it's really, I think, it becomes more like a more of an audit exercise or an accounting exercise. It's 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 useful and interesting to kind of log what what was gained and what was lost with the adoption of this new technology. But probably we shouldn't. We should be honest with ourselves that we're not doing that accounting exercise in order to then decide do the benefits outweigh the costs, and therefore we're going to keep it or not. No, it's we're we're going to keep it. I mean, it's part we, of our, we came it, up with yeah, fire yeah. and we're like, well, it, yeah, it, it, yeah. there's a couple big things it does that are so useful that we we're all going to keep using it. And, and, and evolutionary, yeah. evolutionarily technology. I mean, we are uh, we're cybernetic by nature because of our brain development stuff that we we're storytellers and cyborgs that, that, that technology even before we can actually digitally you know, put nanites in ourselves and do, you know. But we, we're just the technology becomes such a part of us that that it's I mean, I think it's interesting because, you know, one of the first books I ever read by Nietzsche, I think, was The Genealogy of Morals, which blew me away. But, you know, it's interesting. Genealogy. He's, he's not trying to say here's a here's a, a systematic accounting of morality. He's saying here's how these here's how our how morality. They, how they have organically come to. Yes, and he starts so now, with philology, yeah. right, and and, yeah. and and looking at good and bad versus good and evil, and and how why these language choices make a difference, and really, good and evil is more like strong and weak, or noble and not noble, and he goes, but I think that that sort of genealogical account of this stuff is much more helpful because because you're right, I think it's to do it in in a way that's value laden in a heavy handed way, like tries to be, mm. you're right. I think because we just don't know enough ever in the midst of it. It's just the whole uh, of Hegel, the, uh, of the, the wings of Minerva, the owl of Minerva only spreads its wings at dusk, man. You only, everything is in hindsight. You really like that Minerva quote. I do. I do. You use it a couple times. I'm, I'm going to have to like learn, learn some woodworking skills and I can carve it into a plaque for you, and you can hang it in your. Wait, in I'm going to get the there. exact. See, this is what I can do with the internet while we're talking. Al Minerva wings. I'll give you the exact quote. The exact <laughs> quote is is. Oh, I did get it right. The owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with the falling of the dusk. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, so we, that's yeah. So basically, yeah. he's mm -hmm. he's saying like, 
you only get wisdom in hindsight. Like it's always the the, in, the insight comes after the experience. It doesn't. It generally doesn't. And this is Hegel, right? He's a historicist to the degree that he thinks that the ideal is working itself out in a historical process. But it's only looking kind of retrospectively that you see all the truth in the midst of these contradictions and, and mm. historical turns. And, and well, then so and then so you know an interesting question then becomes is so it, it, okay accept all that and then what is sort of the good life or what is the right role very different questions for people you know in the moment of transformational change i mean is it to kind of step back so that we can have some wisdom about these processes and a kind of mm, not 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 fatalism but a kind of acceptance and 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 uh and a reflection to 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 try as best one can to not be swept up by but to thoughtfully adopt technologies or is it about like sort of get down into the moment into the intensity of the moment you know sort of pick up pick up a banner and and and, and join the fight because so in, interestingly um who was i listening to i can't remember it might have even been like pod save america or something and uh yeah maybe it was and you know so a couple of these like ex obama staffers are talking about how their view toward politics has changed over the last few years and you know what i they didn't use these words but what i really heard from them is is the last few years of politics sort of what they saw as the obstructionism of the republicans in the last couple of years the obama administration now the trump presidency it has really weaponized their conception of politics that you know the idea of working with people across the aisle to get stuff done and work on the big problems is is just fantasy and 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 so you have to be you basically have to be a warrior now if you think this is the way the world should go you just got to go join the fight try to win it it's no holds barred because if if you try to be the one who steps back and kind of says, whoa, whoa, whoa okay, we, we really got to think about what we're doing here. Um, this long term is not going to lead us the way we need to go. We need to do X. We need to be collaborative. We need to think long term about the state of liberal democracy in the West or blah, blah, blah. You're just going to lose. <laughs> it's funny, though, because that's that's like the American constitutional system is set up to incentivize compromise, collaborate. Like it, it, it's, set, it's set up to disincentivize winner take all stuff hmm. right it, it hmm. so it's funny because at one point then do you jettison the system because it's not a system that serves that spirit well hmm. that you just you just dispense with especially norms that flow from the system because the norms or culture norms are developed for a non when, when most people realize it's not all winner take all and you and you and you have for the system to work you have to ever you have to realize you're going to win and lose some days and 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 like accepting that reality is part of the real politique in the, in the system, right? So then I guess it gets back to the currency thing, right? At what point do you say this currency is not spendable anymore? So we got a few minutes left. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to look at headlines and see what jumps out at me. All right. I'll do the same thing. I'm looking at CNN breaking news. Of course, we've got Roger Stone was arrested here in America. Roger Stone famously, as he said on Bill Maher once, uh, I, I'm your favorite. I, I'm your favorite because uh, I'm the guy with two dicks, a dick in the front and a dick in the back. Because <laughs> Roger Stone has a has a tattoo of Richard Nixon on his back, which is that ought to be indictable all in it. 
all in it, you know, by itself. But he, of course, is the link uh, to probably the WikiLeaks stuff and the Trump campaign and the Democrats emails and all this stuff. Like it's not, you know, so he's been indicted on multiple counts and probably indulged, indicted multiple counts because Mueller thinks this guy has a link to any kind of conspiracy with the Russian government, the, you know, the information troll farms and things like that and the Trump administration or the Trump campaign. You know, uh, there was a great, there's a great article in the Atlantic a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was a week ago, that talked about um, the case for impeachment, and and it was, you know, it wasn't, it was, I thought a very fair article, like not sort of, you know, the raving Democrat who demonizes all Republicans, but but kind of trying to take the Constitution's view of. You know, if we if we strip away uh, the hate on both sides and just look as dispassionately as at, as one can at the evidence, and his argument was that uh, the House has a a constitutional responsibility to begin impeachment proceedings, and whether whether or not you know it's it's feasible that the president would be convicted, that's the wrong question because then you're asking a partisan question. Um, but if if what you're trying to do is sort of um, be faithful to your oath to the Constitution, that this is part of the oath, that if there are serious allegations and there's some evidence that that you 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 do need to launch that process. And it's and and he actually a historian, so he talks about different times in in U.S. history uh, when the impeachment process was invoked. And I, I think the the time that he spoke about a lot, I can't remember the name, but. After Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, whoever his vice president was, and, and Andrew Johnson was a drunkard. Pretty... And, Andrew Johnson, and, okay, yeah, yeah Andrew right. Johnson. Who it was said about him at the time. No matter somebody said, no matter how bad you, a man you think he is, you usually find out he's worse. He's worse. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. Wow. Ouch. That hurts. That and was hurts. not convicted. <laughs> yeah. Right. So impeached but not convicted, and and so this article's argument was that. But but what what the process does do? It, one, it makes it makes this question and this inquiry kind of a focus of national attention. Um, it it surfaces a lot of evidence that otherwise wouldn't surface. And it it it, it I mean, if there is a serious concern that uh, for whatever reason, whatever dimension, there's an illegitimacy of the presidency, it also tends to stall the presidency. In the sense that you just, I mean, the most valuable resource that an administration has is its time, and and these proceedings take up a lot of their time, so they get less of other things done. Now, depending whether you think, you know, what you think the the um, the credibility of the allegations would be, you see that as a good thing or 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 a bad thing. Um, and likewise, you know, whether you're a sort of a Trump supporter or a um, or a Trump hater. Uh, his other argument was that historically, uh, impeachment proceedings, whether they convict or not, they're kind of the death knell of that politician's political career. Unless you're Bill Clinton. Unless you're Bill Clinton, although he actually, in the article, so he 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 addresses that because sort of it's all it's the obvious counter argument, and his argument there is well, that's that's actually the example that proves his case that that was a case of you know it was such a such a blatantly partisan process that he actually developed into a sympathetic character through the proceeding because yeah, it was yeah. so blatantly partisan. 
And and so that is the the kind of cautionary tale that if you go into this with a blatantly partisan agenda, then you run the very real risk and the reasonable risk of creating a, a, a sympathetic character in the presidency. But if you are faithful to your constitutional duty and you have a kind of dispassionate approach to it, which, you know, especially in this newly elected House, is probably impossible. I mean, dispassion is certainly with the, how many, 30, 40, 50 Democrats who have announced they're running for the presidency? Oh, yeah, it's going to be more every day. It's going to yeah, be more every day. There's, there's, like, dispassion is not really one of the virtues yeah. that you... Yeah, and the system is based on a shame and honor kind of thing, right? There's there's aristocratic. It's interesting because right, De Tocqueville says of America that you know that they they kept some of the aristocratic values, but took them not in the government or in in nobility, but just in civic culture. You tried to some of the best of the aristocratic nobility stuff. You tried to just make in the culture. And this impeachment thing, like if you, like even Nixon, who is a pretty nefarious character in many ways, but. Even Nixon, the sh- just he had a commitment to government institutions, even though he was a pretty selfish and could be a shady guy. And the shame, he just like he had to resign, like it was. So after Clinton, Clinton's kind of like, look, this is sex. Everybody lies about sex. Uh, you know, I'm doing a good job, and I don't have, you know, the shame. I can whatever shame. So now it's kind of like we're in the post shame thing, where where this is where I think Trump's probably thinking, I'll beat the rap in the Senate. Fine, impeach me. I. Uh, I, I, you know, I'll be like, I, I, the, again, some of this sort of high mindedness that the American constitutional framers assumed would implicitly be in the office. I, you just can't see, this is why you need a, a, a royal family as the head of state that can, you know, even though if they're, they, even if, you know, it's, they, be, they don't have the nonpartisan kind of, they, you know, they can hold up the aristocratic ideal. Cause I mean, as it, increasingly, I think that gets harder for that kind of ethos. To infuse the system in all points. So I have. Uh, so looking at the headlines, I guess my meta question about the about the news. And it applies Before to you news. get meta, I can ask okay. you a question. Before you go meta, let me ask okay. you this. Okay. Okay. You down with AOC? Interesting. So that was going to be my second question, maybe. If I, <laughs> like, because I mean, it's very clear. So I'm looking at the Fox News website right now. I mean, they're they're I mean, they're trying to take her down now. I mean, she's only two weeks into her public office life. So what is the fear? And and it seems to me that they must have some kind of algorithm that says these are the people who are, are threatening to our power. And there's something very threatening about uh, a, a charismatic woman with a great story in her 20s. I don't know that they want to take her down. I, I think they want her to be perpetually elected in that liberal district because always be a liberal and better get a charismatic person who says they're sympathetic to socialism to have to 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 as a source or symbol of of what to be angry about like she's great for fox news right like they 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 couldn't dream of a, of a better hmm. person that because, energizes because she, the democratic she epitomizes party. the the wrongness of that side of the aisle right and they're my, absolutely and the fact hmm. that the fact that she has all these Twitter followers, it gets more, we're owning the libs, look how dumb they are, they all are, follow this, she's, they'd vote for her for president, this is how dumb the liberals are. I mean, it's, it is, the, so they, she is they their wildest all, dream They come can true. pour all their hatred into her. Yes. So that in the future, to activate all those, all that multidimensional hatred, they only need to say her name. Yeah, AOC. You down with AOC? That's it, man. She's, Enough she's, said. She is, yeah, that's it. So that's, that's, that's tough. Those are those are 
That's hmm. it's funny though too when everybody said seventy percent income tax on the top tax bracket. You know what it was under Eisenhower? I mean, of course, the communist Eisenhower, right? It was I mean, like ninety, wasn't it? Or something? Yeah, it was ninety, ninety-two, yeah. I think. And, and it's also top it's the top tax bracket. With I, I don't know what the specifics of a proposal is, but that's probably like what ten million dollars or something like that. So it, if you it's, earn it's, over it's, ten million, then you pay. It's a little lower than that, but it's it's but it is like. And you pay only about I mean I don't know maybe it is time but and you only pay that on whatever puts you above the bracket right, that's right so that's it, right so if it's that's like right. five million you don't pay ninety two percent on everything before five million you pay it on on that you know. yeah on the upper and and frankly you know if you're pulling in if you're pulling in ten million dollars of income a year you're not really gonna miss much more of it I you know I would actually more and if, I I need to get some tax economists in the room around me but but I. My, I'm fine with that. That's fine. I would be more skeptical of, you know, what what are the unintended consequences of uh, of a tax bracket like that? Because probably what happens, I mean, it's already happened, but what happened even more is, you know, if you're earning ten million dollars a year or more, you can also figure different ways to pay yourself that money, like as a dividend or into your partnership or something like that. And so instead of reporting it as income, you you report it as dividend or you reinvest it inside the family company or whatever, right? I mean, there'd probably be so much uh, legitimate tax avoidance that would take place to, you know, yeah, not recognize, not recognize it, your your annual income over 10 million as 10 million. And it's interesting because there's Elizabeth Warren. Rich people think, are good at this. Oh, yeah. No, well, I could, she can afford to be good at it. I mean, you hire, you know, it's interesting because- Elizabeth Warren has this proposal that a, a wealth tax where if you're over $50 million, your assets, no loopholes. You're just like over 50 million assets. You pay 2% a year of, on the, on the amount over 50 million. And if over a billion, you pay 3% or something or which economists that she's worked with says, says would generate $2.7 trillion in 10 years of revenue. That's an interesting. Because there she's targeting not the 1%, but the super rich. Like, I mean, you know, the, 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 or the, so it's, I mean, again, America is so kind of uh, against this stuff. Like, I guess maybe because we're founded on a tax, you know, rebellion, it gets tough. But it's amazing to think that we did have 92% top tax. And, and when we had that, right, you built the federal highway system, the GI Bill, built the middle class after the war. I mean, when we had that sort of more stratified tax, or more progressive tax system, it was some of the best years for economic growth and for wealth distribution in the pro like just an economy that generated a, a, a really burgeoning middle class. Yeah, there's a lot of research on this now. And I, I think maybe economic consensus is a strong word, but there's I think it's a no brainer for a lot of people. Um, the research that you know, basic basically what happens with extreme income and wealth inequality is that the money in the economy starts to stagnate. Yeah, yeah, because you're so rich, I'm, I'm not going to spend that money. It, it's I can't kind of throw I, it on I, the pile. Yeah, yeah, I can only eat one T-bone, right? Fifty dollars steak. I can't eat seven. And, and so, yeah, and so those years you talk about, sort of in, like the baby booms and stuff of where there's a more redistributive taxation. There, there's just more circulation happening in the money supply. 
Um, and, and when, when lower income people get more money, they, they spend more. And, you know, one of the, with the current shutdown, I mean, one of the big, one of the big drags in the economy is not these 800,000 people who aren't getting their jobs, but all the businesses that right, were right. serving these 800,000 workers. And Le- like, and like, these Leavenworth, aren't like yeah. Leavenworth, Kansas, my wife grew up in Kansas, should Leavenworth, Kansas, where the big Leavenworth federal prison is, should, that whole town's economy is based on Leavenworth federal prison. Like, Right, all I mean, the, all the, and, and the convenience the, stores, the, the dry cleaners, stores, and the cafes, yeah. and the groceries, and yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, and so and so the the multiplier effect of a, almost a million people who aren't getting their paychecks and then aren't spending it, you know, is is significant to the point that you've now got economists coming out and talking about we we can see the impacts of this shutdown in GDP growth statistics. Well, you can you can flip that and say, you know, what if you know ten or twenty million workers in the United States economy were getting you know so the equivalent of a paycheck and a half each paycheck, and you would see the multiplier go in the other direction. So, so I, I I get the arguments. I think that what what's interesting about tax policy is it sounds so boring, but it is actually you know in some ways kind of like like the, this core profound question that a that that a society has about how do we share the burden and 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 the benefits. And so I mean I I, I mean it. It starts the conversation for people to stand up boldly and say, "I want to have a, a very different um, model of taxation." But it's it, it's going to be the work of to to bring that in the same way that it took you know a couple of generations to get some kind of movement towards universal health care through the United States political system. I mean, it it, it takes uh, it takes cultural change to to get there, and it's not clear it's not clear right now anyway that. Um, that it'll be possible to to organize public opinion against the resistance, against the already well organized resistance to that kind of tax policy change. I mean, it was great. It was, I, AOC was on uh, on um, on the Late Show with uh, with uh, Stephen Colbert. Everybody still just calls it the Colbert Report, but so she was on the Colbert Report, and you know, even he, he was like, "So, like this tax thing, is that like?" How is that going to affect me? Right, <laughs> <laughs> like I'll be yeah. able to avoid it, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. No. So okay. So you you down with AOC? Possibly. You're 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 maybe you're you're being cagey about AOC. you know. So I don't. Uh, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at what she's doing and how she speaks. I've I've seen her speak a couple of times, and I mean she she sounds. Um, She's articulate. Yeah, yeah. She's she's articulate. She's she's an impressive, confident, self-possessed woman and and that that in itself is um powerful political currency. Absolutely. You know, certainly within the Democratic Party right now. I think she's been put on the um on like the House Oversight Committee, which is a sexy position for the next couple of years, right? Because they're going to be doing they're going to be oh, subpoenaing yeah. people. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. So there was there was there was clearly some recognition from the party brain trust that this is somebody who, you know, we need to put in the in position to continue to build a track record and credibility because, you know, Republicans want to demonize her, but but I think it's pretty clear that Democrats want to lionize her. Um and and, you know, probably can see at some point in the future she's gonna be one of their lions to go for a Senate seat, to, you know, run for high office, whatever. On completely other, uh, completely other end of the spectrum, news-wise, do you know what Alex Trebek's one regret in life is? He recently said in an interview. 
so you know what? So we're we're totally on the same wavelength because I saw that headline. I'm still on the Fox News website. I don't know where you found it. Um, and I haven't read it, but apparently it's just in. So break it to me. It's not meeting his wife sooner. They've been married 29 years. Aww. And he says, well, you know, although she's younger than him, so that wouldn't have been legal if he had met her very much sooner. But uh, but he says, you know, like we've had our challenges and we, then we have our really beautiful times where we're just so blessed to know that we're in each other's courtyard. And he and she says the key to Alex Trebek, Jeopardy's host, is to understand he's got a great sense of humor. He takes his job very seriously, but won't take himself too seriously. He's also youthful. He's just an intelligent human being. Part of Alex's staying youthful is his staying curious. Curiosity, Aww. man. So uh, I've got a, a potential Alex Trebek connection. He does... Um he does a great Canadian, of, a great Canadian. Yeah, no, and so he does some kind of like public conference talk thing in Ottawa or Toronto uh, each year, and it's possible that I'll be appearing there this year. Oh my gosh, you're going to meet Trebek? W- would that be? Would you like me to get his autograph for you? I love Trebek. I think he's such a. Co- I love Jeopardy. I like the guy. I like he's he's very. I like Jeopardy. I think it's stick. Cool. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I mean, talk and talk about uh, talk about resiliency. Hey, I mean. How long has Jeopardy been on the air? Oh, decades. He's so interesting. I've heard him interviewed on Howard Stern a couple of times, and he's just a fascinating guy. He's just such a cool... He's the kind of guy you'd really just want to sit and have a glass of wine with and chat. I mean, he's just he seems like a fantastic human okay, being. Well, and some I'll, great wisdom. Some I, great will, wi- I, I, will, I will have the glass of wine and the chat and let you know. And I think he's right there. Something about curiosity... Right is 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 good for the soul. Gratitude and curiosity. Like when you're continually curious about the world, I think it it does keep you young because you're thinking and reflecting and you know curiosity, man. Hey, that's a that's a that's a good a good message to take into the weekend. A good parting note. All right, my friend, it's good to talk, and we'll talk again next week. Always good, Scott. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.